Hello and welcome to The Lens with me, Sarah Travers. Now, The Lens is a business in the community podcast in partnership with One Young World. And we're bringing this podcast to you during COP26, of course, the biggest global climate change summit taking place in Glasgow during November 2021. I'm absolutely delighted that our guests today are Fiona Cousins, Deputy Chair, Digital Executive and America's Sustainable Development Executive at Arup. And we have Harry Grocott, co-founder and CEO of Tree Economy. We all know climate change is a huge issue for everyone. But are the challenges just too big? What part does the built environment and the natural environment play in the bigger picture? And how are companies using data to drive decisions when it comes to tackling the biggest environmental issues? Well, to find out, let's get stuck into the conversation. Fiona is connecting in with us from New York and Harry is linking in from London. Fiona, welcome to The Lens. Thank you. Great to have Good you to with be us. Here. And Harry, the same to you. Hi, nice. Thank, thank you so much for, for having me on. First of all, as we do with, with our guests regularly, we'll find out a little bit more about you first. And I suppose if we start with you, Fiona, Arab. It uh, provides engineering, design, planning, project management and consulting services for all aspects of the built environment. It is a multinational organisation. But tell me, where did you get involved with Arab? What are your roots? I started uh, working in London a long, long time ago, uh, basically straight out of high school. And I became an engineer, which is my background, because... That was what I've always wanted to do. I knew it was for me. My father is an engineer. My grandfather is an engineer. So perhaps unusually for a, you know, a girl in the 80s, I at least knew what engineers did. So uh, what, was, <laughs> what was that like in terms of studying and if you were often the only female in the classroom? How did you cope with that? It has its upsides, that, but people know who you are and, and re recognise and remember you early. I think that the, the upside of that is that you do get a certain amount of attention. Everybody will know if you're behind in class. And the downside of that is that you get a certain amount of attention if you really haven't understood or you don't know or whatever, you, you are drawing even more attention to yourself. I've been in engineering for a really long time. And as I said to one of my colleagues the other day, I've been the oldest woman in the room since I was 25. And that actually is both a, a responsibility and, and sometimes a little bit of a strain. So Arup then, obviously a really exciting organisation to work for. You've done incredibly well. Uh, you're leading especially in the areas around sustainability. But how did you end up working there? So I started working in London when I graduated in 1990s and uh, energy efficiency and energy savings were really new at that time. And one of the very first things I did in my career was to try and figure out how do you use energy and how do buildings use energy and how do you use less of it? And, and at the time, it was really driven more by an understanding that energy costs money and therefore the less of it you use, the better the responsibility is. And then a few years later, I moved to California. Uh, I worked in our San Francisco office for a while. And when I got there, I was sort of appalled. You know, San Francisco has this perfect climate and they weren't doing things like using fresh air economizers, which is a kind of technical term for making sure that they put fresh air into buildings instead of recirculating air in buildings. And it's a very energy efficient thing to do in that particular climate. I was also somewhat shocked by the price of energy in the US at the time was about one fifth of the price of what it was in the UK and Europe. And therefore, all of the calculations that we've been doing in the UK to figure out whether something was worth doing in terms of payback, none of those worked when I moved to California. So it became a slightly different kind of advocacy. 
And then very quickly after I got there, I think the green movement really began in buildings and I was well suited to thinking about it. And then I've just been thinking more and more about that for 25 years. Do you think now you're preaching to the converted much more than you were back then whenever you started, when you were thinking about the messages around being climate smart engineering, all of the energy conservation that we needed to be thinking about? Do you feel that we're there now? It's certainly changed. I mean, there was 15 years there of banging one's head against a brick wall to try and say actually climate advocacy is important, energy is important, buildings in energy. And trying to make the case with finances, which are the things that speak loudest to real estate developers, was very difficult to do. It was easier to sort of make the case for high quality buildings. And I was very involved with the US Green Building Council for a long time. And that group and its rating systems actually provided some really interesting market transformation and work within the market that made people think about their lead ratings, which includes a big energy component, and do things perhaps that they otherwise wouldn't have done if they'd only been taking a financial view. Sure, there's a real onus on everyone to do their bit. Harry, I just love tree economy. For those who have never heard of tree economy before, let's hear the elevator pitch. Our, our motto really is, is unlocking nature's value. We believe and we know that nature and, and natural systems have enormous intrinsic value. And we know that as a society and as a world, we don't really value that at all. I think there's statistics around natural ecosystem services being sort of $70 trillion, which is almost a comically large value. Wow. That's the, the amount of free things that nature gives to us every year is just massive. It's three to four times as big as the US economy. So really our business is all around using new technology to go out and, and value these natural ecosystems with a particular focus on looking at, at how ecosystems capture and store carbon dioxide. So this is obviously a, an increasingly important issue and for governments, but also for companies now. So so essentially, as a business, we're going out and finding and bringing projects. It could be sort of afforestation or it could be mangroves or it could be peat restoration projects to life. But really importantly, then using technology to actually uh, monitor and, and calculate these projects over time. And importantly, also then make sure that that is actually profitable and makes money for the landowners. So landowners have an incentive to then increase the value of their natural stock and make the right land use decisions. So you package and sell carbon offsets on behalf of landowners, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We basically sell carbon offset or carbon removal credits. They represent one tonne of CO2 that's been removed from the atmosphere. We're working directly with landowners for that. Our main projects at the moment, we are looking at, at afforestation. So that's working with people to plant new trees. But really, we don't look at it from a tree counting perspective. We're looking at it from an ecosystem perspective. So we like to say that we're creating uh, new ecosystems, new forests, new woodlands, rather than the individual beneath that. So how long have you been doing this and and how did it all start? Yeah, I studied geography at university. It's my undergraduate degree at the University of Exeter in physical geography. So that's sort of climate change science, physical landscape science. was very fortunate to go for a field trip to Brazil. So we went to the Atlantic Forest and spent a week out there, which was eye-opening. I then spent three years in financial services. I completely deviated and went off track and worked in the city in wealth management, became a qualified financial advisor. At that exact point, I'd already had the concept for tree economy and really liked it. I left the company I was at and joined Imperial College London in the business school and did a, a master's degree in climate change management and finance, but also use that time really to kind of dip my toe into the entrepreneurial scene and get used to how tree economy could work, speak to landowners and, and really flesh out what was 
at that point, an idea on paper into something that, that could really become potentially a very impactful business. And did you find it was an easy sell when you went out there and said, hey, I've got an idea for a business. What do you think? Do you want to invest in me? Uh, it's, it's certainly not an easy sell, no. I think we have very deliberately gone after not just a hard thing to fix, but we've gone after it in a way that we think is most impactful and therefore is not necessarily the quickest and easiest route. We're dealing with ecosystems and forests. These things can catch fire and fall over, and there's all sorts of issues and risks that come with it. It's not necessarily easy, but it is really rewarding when we go out and see the projects that we're helping. Well, it's so interesting to hear a little bit about your background too. Obviously, you've set out on a vocational path that was very much in the DNA. Tell me a little bit about your interest in GIS, Geographic Information Systems, and Satellite image manipulation. In my undergraduate degree, we did a lot of work on satellite monitoring and looking at mainly at sort of glaciers and, and things like that. And even when I was in finance and wealth management, it's kind of the connection of that data and, and satellite process and the information that can give us with finance and financial flows and how those things can be merged together, which is where tree economy has come to. It's the fusion really of those two things. We're using very high resolution satellite imagery so 50 centimeter resolution images. So we, we literally move a satellite over the forest in order to get the image. You take lots and lots of images, you stitch them together, and then you can extract again a point cloud that basically gives us a 3D shape of the forest. And then once we've got all this enormous data set, it's then using big data and, and machine learning processes to really organize that, and actually give us useful things out of it. So how many trees are there? How big are those trees? How big is the forest? Those sorts of bits we can then pull together. And then we have a much better idea as to, to what's going on. Incredible, really. And Fiona, I was going to bring you in there because uh, technology has transformed the way you do things. No more site visits, perhaps, when you're not even in the same landmass. Would you say that's exactly the same in construction? We use a lot of the same techniques for figuring out what's there. You can use photogrammetry to take enough images of a building that you then know what's there so you don't have to keep going back and saying, now, what's that light switch over here? The answer is, the question that I wanted to ask you, Harry, was about, you know, one of the big problems with the offsets generation business is verification and the other one is additionality. And I'm sort of seeing how your digital work might help support that. And I wondered if you could talk a bit more about that. Of course, you have a forest area, a different company will come and have a look and figure out how much carbon, for example, is captured or, or not emitted from a site. So with our own project, essentially, we're improving the way that we are accounting for the carbon within those sites. So at the moment, if you have a forest, no one actually knows really how much carbon is in there. No one even knows how many trees are in there or really how big they are because we're relying on tape measures. People take a, a small representative sample of a site and then expand that over the whole area. So what we're looking to do instead is use satellites and drones to get the whole project site, get all of that data together, and then present that to the auditors with a far more data-rich and accurate and quantified error-bound that goes with that to improve the verification and fundamentally improve the trust within these projects. Because otherwise, we're transacting an invisible gas from a project that no one's ever going to visit. So how do we make that trustworthy? Fiona, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. That's what I hoped you were going to say, is we can actually measure it. We can measure all of it, not just on a sample basis. And we can really see what's happening. So if you know somebody sets fire to the middle of it, you don't have to just guess that the outside is still there. Have you heard about tree economy? I had not heard about it before this conversation. I have spent quite a bit of time looking at and thinking about offsets. One of the things that 
Arup does uh, and has done for a long time is to offset our electricity purchases. And there is often a, a pretty vibrant conversation about whether you should do that with renewable energy certificates, which are in some ways easier to verify than offsets. But if you're not actually using electricity, there's an argument that you shouldn't be offsetting your fossil fuel burning with electricity generation, you should be offsetting it with carbon sequestration or capture or absorption from the atmosphere. So there's a couple of quite difficult technical questions in there about how much should you really pay for an offset? And how do you know that if you pay more, you're actually getting better value or better action? Mm. And so we've spent quite a lot of time in that territory trying to figure out what is it we should actually be buying and why and from whom. Mm, interesting. Harry, do you have any answers for Fiona there? This is exactly the reason that we're looking to do what we're doing, because we have exactly the same thought process that Vienna is going through there, which is how do we actually demonstrate that what we're doing is impactful? And how do we do that in a trustworthy, but also a really consistent manner? And this, I firmly believe what we are building is exactly what's going to solve that for nature-based solutions. We don't work on, on renewable energy projects or, or anything else like that. But for nature, we think that this process is exactly solving that problem. Let's move the conversation on to COP26. I'm really interested to hear both your views on COP as a whole, specifically keen to hear what you think might come out of this really important summit this year. Fiona? I think that what we are all hoping will come out of this is increased commitments that are better verified, that really begin to sort of set us towards that very narrow path to one and a half degrees that we see is not anywhere close to being achieved yet. We need to be much faster and much more committed, especially in the developed world towards getting to that one and a half degrees. So I'm hoping that what comes out of this conference is enough of a framework that we can really narrow that pathway to one and a half degrees. I think that even if we don't get all the way there this time around, and a lot of the work, of course, is already done because the parties who are coming to the conference have done an enormous amount of work in preparation for this to see what they can commit to. The lines within which the sort of the negotiation can colour have already been pretty firmly drawn. But I think there are some other things that could come out of it. We haven't had one for two years is incredibly high profile. Hearing much more about it in the media than I had heard in previous years. But I'm beginning to see more and more in the markets with many of our clients that they're beginning to make commitments and there's beginning to be a push from the non-state actors towards the governments to actually try to do more. And so what I'm hoping comes out of this is a big gust of inspiration that actually really helps to sort of blow everybody towards a better outcome. There's the formal outcomes and I'm hoping that the informal outcomes will be really strong this year. How do we bring all of those countries that really aren't showing commitment or can't deliver on it? I think there's two things that it's really critical to the way that COP negotiations happen is there are a few really big emitters. The US is one, Europe is another one, China is another one, and India is probably the fourth. And of those countries, Europe and the US are tied into commitments under a particular protocol of the agreement, and they have to do what they have to do. And China and India are considered to be less developed nations. They haven't had 100 years of development on the back of emissions that the rest of the world has had. And so there's a little bit more room under the way that the protocols are negotiated for them to not be quite as tied to formal commitments. And I think that we're getting to a point where there's politics, obviously, involved between the US and Europe, thinking that they know they need to do something, but they're less prepared 
prepared to act if China is the biggest emitter in the world is not prepared to act and China is bound by a different set of protocols under COP. So that the strands of the negotiation are not as straightforward as they might be. And then India, as it develops and becomes more industrialized, is becoming a much more significant emitter too. So the question is, how do you maybe extend so that what are now the biggest emitters as opposed to the ones that were the biggest emitters at COP1 are really stepping forward and making the changes? And how do you then cope with this equity issue of the northern countries have in many cases got hundreds of years of development that has happened with emissions? What do we owe other countries as a result of that embedded development? Absolutely. Great points there. Harry, just to bring you in on your hopes for COP26 at the minute, we're hearing so much more and younger people so much more involved and part of the conversation. But what are your hopes? Yeah, I think that there really is quite an interesting buzz around this. I've got friends and siblings and family members who are now asking about it, talking about it. It really does seem to be on the conscience. And I think that's a really important part of it because we talk about stakeholderism in business but this is really sort of stakeholderism for the planet. I hope that it doesn't just come about as a single event and then swiftly forgotten about, which is potentially easy to do, especially with COVID-19 still around and a bunch of other large sort of news items. So I'm hoping that that really sticks, that there is a, a consistent conscience. Secondly, specifically to our business sector, which is carbon and carbon trading, there's a really interesting discussion around Article 6, specifically looking at the transaction for international carbon offset credits and how those are accounted for between companies and governments. That's really important. So if we have a UK entity buying offsets from Brazil, for example, from the Amazon rainforest, how are those then considered at the government level? And, and that feeds into jurisdictional discussions and those pledges and the NDCs that are made. And to Fiona's point previously around that additionality and verification piece as well. It's a really complicated, sticky subject and is, so I suppose, perfect for COP in one sense. That's one specific area I'm really watching. Yeah, and I think that is really interesting. There'll be lots of businesses that are tuning into this and maybe have the same view that these global summits took place and it was one world leader talking to another world leader. But what does it mean for me and my staff of whatever you have, 100 people, how does it relate to me and my business and how do I want to be responsible? But up until this point, I didn't know what to do. Exactly. I think it's really important because, you know, we have countries that are filled with people and companies that are filled with people. And that becomes a social legitimacy question more than anything. You simply cannot afford to not discuss this and take it seriously. And Fiona, I believe Arab is all over COP26. Arab is the UK government's sustainability consultant. So what's happening? We have quite a few things going on. We have quite a lot of our senior leaders from the UK will be taking part in various presentations. There's an exhibit at the Glasgow Science Centre called Polar Zero, which is an immersive exhibit that we have helped support. And there's a Global Climate Citizen Action exhibition and there's an Environmental Photographer of the Year Award, all of which we have been key supporters of. In addition to that, there are a number of you know, very specific activities where people are talking about offshore wind or nature-based solutions or other events that are taking part in the periphery of COP. You've got a leadership position within Arab as well around the green message. We know that manufacturing and construction have been big offenders when it comes to the impact it's having on the climate. But you have changed. You are leading. Is it possible to build now in a sustainable, green way. How will you know that you have achieved what you have set out to achieve as a leader within Arab? 
I think that there is always something that we can do to take the next step. So what we are working really hard with in the firm is to get more and more people more and more interested in figuring out how they can make changes at the place that they are in the project. So making impact from the spot that you are. For the projects that don't yet exist, I think there are things about, is it possible to shape those projects? Is it possible to look broadly at some of the issues around biodiversity or around social justice or around climate impact that perhaps was thought about or talked about in the conception of that project? And depending on the stage that it's at, you might be able to change the project completely. You might be able to change the project a little bit, or you might be able to change the project quite a lot. We have people who are working in collaboration with our clients and perhaps before the projects come to market as things that we can propose on to try to shape what those outcomes are and what those projects are so that they can be projects that actually support equitable, environmentally supportive and social development in the ways that we want them to be. How do you create the society that you want to have? Engineers, designers, plans, consultants have a huge role to play in that, but we're not the only players. There are also governments, there are clients, there are architects, there are a whole series of other people who need to be enthusiastic or who need to be brought along What stands out in your mind as exciting developments that you're looking at at the minute? I think there are many, many things. The thing that would be most impactful would be if we reused a lot of the building stock that we already have, because there's an enormous amount of carbon emitted in the construction of buildings. Building so that you can repurpose, it's it's adjusting what we already have so that it can be zero net energy over time. It's figuring out when do you actually need to really construct something in order to make a difference, and when is it actually okay or better to think about reusing what you already have. And we've got, you know, decades of projects at this point that have aimed for net zero. We know that technically it's possible, but it's not only an engineering and technical problem, it's a social, political, financial management problem. And unless everybody is moving in the same direction and thinking about moving in the same direction is really difficult for any individual in that whole process to actually make a massive impact. And then the second thing is that, you know, my big exciting step forward into the future is not about some crazy looking building or some very difficult looking piece of infrastructure about how do we get the best out of what we've already built and how do we make sure that we can reuse that, repurpose it and use and use what we have to to be more regenerative of, of some of the ecosystems that we have you know been pulling apart for, for hundreds of years already. So the circular economy, reusing, repairing. Harry, let's bring you in because I'm just wondering in terms of tree economy, what do you see as the big opportunities ahead? We know there's only so much land that we can plant trees on and they can only capture so much CO2. So so we need to begin to think, okay, if we're very successful with trees, where else can we go? What else can we do? So one thing we've started off quite recently as an internal research and development process is looking at peatland monitoring. Mm. The UK is actually quite blessed with, with a lot of peatland. They store a lot of CO2, but they're often very degraded. We've dug ditches to drain them. As they dry out, they degrade and they release all of the CO2 they store into the atmosphere. A very quick fix is to improve the condition of these peatlands. So we're looking at how we can use satellites to monitor the temperature and wetness of these ecosystems, because a happy peatland is one that's cold and wet. Not that many people actually know the west coast of Scotland is technically designated as a rainforest. So the UK does have its own rainforest. It's not quite as big as the Amazon, but it's there. And unfortunately, it's very degraded. So there's this Alliance for Saving Scotland's Rainforest. So we're looking at how we can set up projects with them and help them to source funding that they so desperately need by bringing carbon finance to those sorts of projects. We have a a really interesting project we want to get going in Ecuador as well that's a a mixed mangrove food forest and forest conservation scheme, which looks absolutely stunning and has a uh, 
an eco-tourist resort as well. So we're very excited about trying to help them. Both of you seem to have these brilliant minds that, you know, are always reaching out on what's next and searching on everybody else's behalf. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by Business in the Community. It's driving a network of more than 600 businesses across the UK to work together now to take action on climate. And I mentioned before that when we look to COP, we tend to look at the big world leaders talking to each other. But there are a lot of businesses on the ground daily wanting to make that difference. I'd love to talk to both of you now about what your thoughts are on businesses working together, maybe large with small, etc., to tackle issues such as climate change or biodiversity. We, as a company, we have huge ambitions, but we're very small. We can't move as quickly as we want to so we're going to have to look to partnerships to have the impact that we want and that we need to have so partnerships for us are vital there if you look at the sustainable development goals sdg 17 is partnership for the goals and i think that's really important to remember if we're working in partnership with large companies like arab and smaller companies on the ground then we can start having a a far bigger impact collectively than individually Uh, well fiona no pressure or anything but what do you think of that idea (laughs) I think Harry's right. I think that the way that these things happen and the way that we move at pace, everybody has to be doing whatever they can do. If you are a big company, it might be that buying the offsets or committing to buying the offsets is the right thing. And as the company, we have committed to become a net zero company over time. And we have targets that are certified through the SBTI. And we're busy looking at, you know, what does that actually mean to our operations? And that's good. But what becomes really clear very early on in that process is you discover that a lot of your impact is in scope three. Uh, as in it's somebody else's problem uh, in some ways or somebody else's emissions. So the question is, how do you deal with those scope three emissions? How do you figure out what they actually are? Which ones of them do you really have control over? And how do you reduce them? I think that this piece where we have to go together because every piece of emission belongs to somebody. If it's your scope three, it's somebody else's scope one or scope two. It's just the nature of it. In order to act, we have to act together. You have to actually have some kind of common purpose around climate change or biodiversity or the climate crisis or whatever it is that you're doing in order to get everybody to act in that direction. And then the other things that I've seen as being really impactful in the market, you know, I was very involved with USGBC for a time, and that actually was a convening of large and small companies, experts and clients to develop and generate the the lead system and then to give that lead system a footing in the market. That particular idea has been done, but that couldn't have happened without the kind of convening that nonprofit organisations and people who create the environment we're in, which partnerships can work. And I suppose even, you know, a simple podcast like this starts a conversation going and introduces us to people like you, great guests, who will give us a bit more of an insight and an understanding into maybe a world that we want to help in, but we don't know what to do to make a difference. We have a couple of quick fire questions just to kind of bring us to the close of the Lens podcast today. If you had the power, Harry, to change anything in the world, what would it be and why? I think I would like everyone really just to remember that we really are just monkeys with massive brains and that we're a species and we're part of nature and we're not separate from it. That single change would actually have an enormous difference in the way that we do things and value things and would really benefit the environment holistically. Okay, same question to you, Fiona. If you had a superpower to change anything in the world, what would it be and why? Um... So I don't think I have anything as succinct as that, although I like the idea of, you know, we're monkeys with big brains, therefore we should remember that we're part of the ecosystem. But I'd like to wave a magic wand so I'm no longer banging my head against the brick wall trying to explain to people that this is an important thing, that that would be something that would be fantastic. 
Also, both of you are leaders. What are you as leaders committed to doing personally to make the world a better place? Fiona. So I think there are a number of things. I'm quite aware of my personal carbon footprint and I'm quite aware of the things that I do that make a difference to it. I have been a vegetarian for 30 years. I think that that is one of the things that we know makes a real difference. I haven't owned a car ever. That also makes a real difference. And I try to be careful about the things that I buy. Not too many of them, not too often. Make sure that they're things that I'm going to then use for a really long time and that I replace only when they're worn out. And I live in a very small apartment in New York with my husband and we have a one-in-one-out rule, which means that you aren't allowed to buy anything unless you're going to throw something away or find a place to recycle it or move it on. And that is a big bonus if you are thinking about buying something. It's like, okay, what am I going to give up if I'm going to do this? I think that kind of... That's the the personal commitment. One in, one out. I love it. And great to hear that. You absolutely are embodying what it means to be green. What about you, Harry? I think I'm going to steal that one in, one out process. So Treeconomy, we are a startup business. Myself and Rob as co-founders are entrepreneurs. From my own perspective, continue to take risks, I think, will be the main commitment that we will stick to. So that's risks that, that others aren't yet willing to take that are pro-climate and pro-environment. We exist literally to put risk capital to work for the environment. I plan to do that consistently and relentlessly. It's been an absolute pleasure for me to talk to you both today. So thank you very much to Harry Grokop, co-founder and CEO of Tree Economy. And thank you also to Fiona joining us from Arab there in New York. Take care. Business in the community is actively working with businesses across the UK to take action on climate. And if your business needs help or has the desire to collaborate, find out more at www.bitc.org.uk.